Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. This week we are looking at lesson number 12, Joseph the Prince of Egypt. We're rapidly closing on the very end of this quarter and getting to some of the most exciting stories in the book of Genesis. I trust that you have enjoyed our journey together and I'm delighted to have back with us again Dr. Stephen Bauer. He's professor of theology and ethics at Southern Adventist University. I want to make sure I get both of those. Steve, welcome back again. Thank you. It's good to be back. So we're digging into an exciting chapter in the book of Genesis, and that is the story of Joseph. We take a look at Joseph, his beginnings, where he went. It wasn't exactly what you might call the smoothest journey ever, but it did get him where God wanted him. So Joseph begins his, his journey as a, as a favored son, but some things go south pretty quickly in the story. Tell us a little bit about Joseph. That's a big assignment. Um, the, um, he was the favored son. The uh, multicolored coat, as we translate it, was probably the indicator that Jacob intended to move the birthright to him as the firstborn of the second wife. It can't develop it here, but the three older brothers had disqualified, and Judah it will be the next in line, but Joseph, uh, Jacob switches streams. And so part of the dynamic is going to be Judah's trying to get rid of Joseph to secure his position. And that's where it's his idea to send him into slavery. But we open then with Joseph in prison, and we read... The Lord was with Joseph, it says, and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, before this, he is also given favor with Potiphar, and he rises up to be the head of Potiphar Incorporated so that Potiphar is not even auditing him. And uh, we'll come back to this later. And then the false charges by Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison and he's at this lowest point where everything in his life is going south. And the text in again, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Two verses later, Genesis 39:23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Same language as Potiphar. Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. He's in prison because he was falsely accused of making an improper advance on Mrs. Potiphar, who had actually made the advance on him and is punishing him for refusing her. And then Genesis 41, he's, quote, spent two whole years in prison. Now, I think if Potiphar had believed his wife, you know, he would have been gone. So now he's a slave. He's sold as a slave. He gets unjustly treated, ends up in prison. At least he's not dead. And in the middle of all this stuff, God is with him. And then, finally, when, who was it, the baker or the butler, I forget which, remembers the dream, and I think it was the butler, and with Pharaoh's dream, and says, oh, yeah, we had this guy, you know, this is two years later. He describes Joseph, or now Pharaoh eventually describes Joseph as, quote, a man in his whom the Spirit of God. So you have this strange phenomenon that everything's going wrong in his life. You know, injustice and oppression and 
and, you know, just bad luck and whatever else. And you would think this guy is cursed of God. And this is when it says God was with him. So when our lives are in turmoil, we lost our job or, you know, death of someone close to us or, you know, cancer or some disease or financial ruin because your, you know, medical or car got totaled or something, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. He's with us in those bad times. And that should be an encouragement. <coughs> Most of us haven't had a perfectly smooth lives. There have been challenges that we have faced. Likely you have faced challenges in your life as well. And if you're going through a challenge, God is with you in that challenge. God will help you through that challenge if you will allow him to do, just as he helped Joseph through that challenge. You know, when when the Bible describes Joseph's uh, challenges, as we were just talking about, it kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the challenges that Daniel faced as well. There are some parallels uh, yes. between those two stories. I, I was observing that to myself. Um, you know, they both get taken captive and forcibly removed from their home. They both have this rise of, you know, everything's going south, yet God is with them through these turmoils and rises. Joseph gets the ethical dilemma with Mrs. Potiphar's advance on him. Uh, jo- uh, Daniel's going to get it with the lion's den later on. They both interpret dreams. And again, two examples that just because a sinful world is beating you up does not mean God has forsaken you. When we talk about life beating people up like like Joseph, like Daniel, like, like yeah. maybe what you're going through right now, God doesn't always preserve us from trouble. Yes, that's... In, in fact, frequently he, he allows us to go through trouble. What's, what's the benefit of us going through trouble? Sometimes it doesn't seem like yeah. it's very, very beneficial. Well, in Genesis 1, in my estimation, not well, God is, makes man in the image of God. Genesis 2, in the day you eat thereof of this tree, you'll certainly die. But the lie of the devil was you'll become like God. You can transcend your limits and become like God. God is lying to keep you under his thumb. And so since our problem was failure to recognize our limits as a creature, part of the discipline that God brought upon humankind, especially as slaves of sin, where we want to exalt self, is life is unpredictable. Plus free will and justice. You know, babies die of SIDS and People get cancer who eat the perfect diet, and somebody else smokes like a chimney and lives to 105, and, you know, on the odds, that's not going to work, but, you know, these individual cases. And so this randomness of life where things don't always work the way they're, quote, supposed to, and we're not able to control it, is God's putting limits on us to help us recognize you're a finite creature, you cannot be the unlimited God, uh, it's, it's kind of a discipline thing. And the good news is that this bubble of chaos that we live in may be out of control for us, but it's inside God's sovereignty. We don't want to create a dualistic God where somehow Satan has so much power he becomes the evil God. You know, Job shows us God puts limits even on Satan. And so... We have this bubble where things are not fully controllable and predictable that helps us remember 
the lesson we forgot in Eden, you shall be as God. No, I'm a finite creature. I can never be that. So Joseph is kind of experiencing this unpleasantness in his life, but God brings him out of prison and he's elevated to, again, a position of significant authority. Second only to Pharaoh. Second only to Pharaoh. And there are not too many people who who can claim that kind of power and influence. Rags to riches in in a a heartbeat. In a uh, very short period of time. uh, This way. But again, I think that uh, the reputation from Potiphar, who was the head of the army, and or one of the generals, at least, in the army, uh, along with the jail keepers and so forth, when the, you know, there's something about this guy that makes him trustworthy, plus the counsel he gave you know, about building up the storehouses and stuff. It's funny, for a guy who seems so stupid in his youth, telling everybody the dreams and they're getting mad at him, uh, maybe a little more discretion. Maybe that's where he learned his discretion. He becomes this very prudent, wise, but very moral person, and especially in the days where kings, you know, you can go from favor to disfavor and back and forth, you know, boom, rags to number two in the kingdom, again, because God is with him. And it's a good thing that God was with him because his brothers find themselves, his, his whole family finds themselves in, in a measure of want uh, at that mm-hmm. time and, and in need of help. And so they go to find help and Help can be found in Egypt. So how did, how did Joseph interact with them when, uh, when they came seeking help, seeking assistance? Uh, you, you, we, we, might, we might be tempted to think, oh, it's, it's those guys. You know, let, let me, I'll put a hurting on them. I'll fix them. But that's not what happens with, uh, with There's Joseph. going to be two stages to this, and so we'll get started. Uh, I think the break is looming upon us here, but... Let me back up again with Judah's idea to sell Joseph prevailing over Reuben's attempt to leader leadership. Reuben is the ineffective leader. Judah is the natural leader. So he rises as kind of the villain against the, the hero, uh, Joseph. And so we're going to get a character development on Judah's character in chapter 38. And everywhere he's failing, chapter 39, 40, 41, Joseph is the paragon of virtue. And so... When they come in, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And I think there's two reasons they don't recognize him. Number one, they think he's dead. I think Judah figured slavery would kill him, so I'll be moral. And instead of killing him ourselves like we originally planned, sell him as a slave, he'll die. He's a spoiled bratty. So they don't expect him to be alive. And on the second trip, he bluntly says to his brother unwittingly, you know, he doesn't know it's Joseph, you know, this other brother is dead. The first time, he's not. The second time, he's dead. Reuben talks about him like he's dead. So they've bought into this story that he's dead. So they're not, a, you know, that's off the radar screen. And then 20 years have gone by from being a mid to late teen to an adult. So you're going to flesh out, fill out. Plus, he's groomed like an Egyptian. So he's going to be shaved and, you know, not the beard and all that kind of stuff. So just a total, total shock. And he plays these games with them to test their character this way. And the first game, of course, after three days in prison, you're spies and, oh, I fear God. And then he puts all the money back in their sacks. And they figure that out on the way home when it's too late to 
to bring it back. So that's where they eventually are going to make the plan. We'll bring double the money, show we're honest people, etc. So we're going to pick up this story with Joseph and his brothers here in just a moment. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet done so, make sure that you stop over on the It Is Written store, itiswritten.shop, and pick up the companion book to this quarter's lesson, which is on the book of Genesis by, of course, Jacques Ducan. We are going to come back in just a moment as we continue our look at the story of Joseph, a powerful story that shows how God can bring people through challenging times and bless them despite those challenging times. We'll be right back. There's something I want to tell you about that is so important. It's My Place with Jesus. It is written's ministry to children. Take the children you care about to MyPlaceWithJesus.com. At My Place with Jesus, you'll find so much that will bless your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or the children at church. There are the My Place with Jesus Bible Guides, 21 studies that will take the children you care about into the Word of God. They'll learn the important things, especially the love of God and the sacrifice Jesus made for them. As well, take your children to Journey Through the Bible. It's there at MyPlaceWithJesus.com. It's a special Bible reading program that will get children into the habit of reading their Bible daily and connecting with God regularly. So don't forget, MyPlaceWithJesus.com from It Is Written. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are continuing our journey through lesson number 12, looking at Joseph, the prince of Egypt. Now, Steve, when we took a break, we were talking about how Joseph was kind of leading his brothers through these these tests, these challenges, as it were, and Benjamin is not with them on the first trip. Why wasn't Benjamin there? I think it's because Benjamin was the only other son from Rachel, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, at least in the beginning. And so, having moved the birthright over to Joseph, but now he's, quote, dead, then um, Benjamin seems to now be the the last living tie to Rachel. And at least emotionally, though I'm not sure about politically in the family, but emotionally he's now this special cherished. He's also probably the baby of the family. And so we have some interesting parallels because back 20 years or so ago, the brothers get sent out on a mission, and then Joseph comes later, and when he comes later, that's when they plot, and he gets sold as a slave, and his life goes, he's in danger, and so forth this way. Now they do the first trip, and they have this story that we're 10 brothers, one younger brother's at home, the other one's dead, and to test this, to verify the truthfulness of their story, he says, well, when you come back next time, 
you bring the younger brother, and in the meantime, he puts Simeon in prison. Commentators vary, but possibly Simeon in the uh, tumult against Joseph 20 years ago may have been especially harsh, so this may be related to that. We're not fully certain. But the point is, we now have kind of a hostage in Egypt that doesn't get released unless Benjamin comes. And, and so uh, he's the new favored son. And so the brothers had been jealous of the favored son before, especially Judah, because he feels like he's next in line for the birthright, but this switch. And this is now going to set up the endangerment of the new favored son to see how the brothers react to this. So the brothers go home. And they're home for a period of time, but then food stores run low again, and it's time to go back to Egypt. And this time they've got to bring Benjamin. When they bring Benjamin, some more interesting things take place. Joseph kind of, uh, he, he knows who Benjamin is. Of course. But he doesn't know, but they don't know that he knows. Right. But there are some, some curious things that take place in the way that Joseph interacts with them. And Joseph is working through a translator, so they have no clue that he understands them after all these years. Um, he is now knowledge of his mother tongue stuck. And it's the incidental comments that are revealing the character. You know, uh, you know Reuben comments, oh, this is happy. They're all commenting to the effect of, I guess we're finally getting almost a you know, karma-like payback for Joseph. So they're, they're relating this calamity to their mistreatment of Joseph openly, not knowing it's Joseph who's listening to him. And I think there's an important issue there. I read a a memoir of a U.S. spy in World War II who had got drawn into the British, uh, some of the British royals' social circles and became personal friends with the king who abdicated for the wife that didn't allow under British law. So he said, I'll just be a prince and somebody else can be king. She was close friends with them. And what she learned from the lady, I think it was Wallace Simpson, the actress, uh, was that incidental comments tell you much about a person when they don't think there's anything at stake because you don't understand. And so Joseph understands, but he knows that they are talking freely because they think he doesn't understand. And so this is giving the snapshot of the true character And the character he sees is radically different from the character 20 years ago that that mistreated him. But he puts them under some pressure just to see. Pressure helps reveal character. And so he he sets up the the food and uh, five times as much food to Benjamin, and he sets him in order, like, how did he know this? And... um, because Joseph's not on the map, you know. And this is all going to set up his messing with them that he has the power of divination and so forth. But all of this is a psychological uh, game to put pressure on them to see if they crack and show their, quote, true colors or if this is who they really are. And then, to, to add another level to this, he has his cup placed in the sack of Benjamin, which, you know, if they had... If they'd found there was a problem with their sacks the first time, 
Why didn't they check the second time? <laughs> You'd think that would be at the top of their of their to do list, but they don't. Yeah, the uh, uh, I, I've marvelled at that myself. Uh, why did you? You went through this once. Why not double check it? But oh no, we're, I guess they felt that they're under the eyes. If they open the mouth of the sack, they might be accused of something. So we're going to be good boys, and off they go. And then, of course, a short distance out, the you know posse arrives and. You know, who stole the cup? And, oh, and of course, the brothers trying, whoever, if any of us has this cup, you know, let him die. And then, of course, the cup is found in Benjamin. But meanwhile, the, the police are just saying, no, no death. He'll be the lifelong slave. And so they give this exaggerated claim to try to prove, and of course, not, not witting. And so now when Benjamin's cup, and oh, man, he's not going to be able to go home and the tearing of the clothes, and the grief, and so forth. And eventually, Judah again arises. He's always the one who does the talking, both trip one and trip two. And he's going to make this beautiful speech about, um, you know, we lost this brother, and it's the brother from the same wife, and our father's really attached to him. And now that he's probably a father, and he's lost two sons, back in chapter 38 with Tamar, He's like, oh, you know, now I get why dad, you know, is so upset and so forth. And I think the others had also probably had their children. And so they now have a more fatherly perspective than they maybe had earlier and a more matured fatherly perspective at least. And so Judah now changes from wanting to sell the favored son to set himself up to get something. And he offers himself as a substitute in uh, verse 33 of Genesis 44. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. This instead of is the same word as in the sacrifice of Isaac, where it was the ram instead of him. It's the language of substitution. And so Judah is not the selfish, conniving man that he was before. He's sacrificing his future to protect the favored son to get him back to his dad out of his love for his father. And that's the last straw that really reveals that these guys, God has changed them. They're not the uh, conniving idiots they were before. They have changed under the Spirit of God to this more merciful understanding, more selfless group. And now he knows that the process of healing can go forward safely. And, and so he, in, in Genesis chapter 45, sees the change, knows it's real, sees the remorse, mm-hmm. sees the repentance, and it, 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 it tears him up in, in the best way inside. I mean, he, yeah. he breaks down. And it's hard for me to read that section without choking up myself. It's a very poignant uh, section. But it's funny, he dismisses everybody except the brothers. So they got, what's going on? And then imagine what went through their heart when he shouts out in the mother tongue, I am Joseph, your brother. You know, they had to be frozen. And then he's got to invite them, come close to me and so forth this way. And then he has this interesting comment in verse 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me 
before you to preserve life. Now, before we get to the God sent, when God gives us forgiveness the way Joseph is giving them forgiveness, you know, we've repented, we're sorry, we're remorseful, we're trying to live more correctly and so forth. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is your own self. And so he has to say, look, you know, I'm forgiving you, but you got to forgive yourselves. Don't, don't keep this burden on you unnecessarily. I'm lifting it off of you. I'm not holding this on you. So don't hold it on yourself. Uh, I think that's a... It's one thing to remember, like Paul always kept as the anchor point how he was the persecutor of the church, but not as a burden, but as a reference point that reminded him of the grace of God. And so forgive yourself. Don't forget the marker point for the grace of God, but but if God lifts the burden, why should you put it back on? And I, I run into a lot of Christians today who, who have that problem. You know, if, if you've confessed a sin, if you've forsaken the sin, if, if you've turned away from it, it, God's promises, if you confess it, he will forgive it. And if we continue going around feeling like we've still got this on us, we're... Instead of being able to move forward, you're busy stuck in what seems like a penance-type we are, and there, there's no freedom there. It's, it's all guilt and, and pain and sorrow. And, and the purpose of the forgiveness cycle is not to merely pay a penalty. Uh, you do have penalty payment where God absorbs the cost of justice, but justice is not ignored. It's not amnesty. We have a lot of views of forgiveness where it's just to help me feel better about things, you know, get that burden off. But forgiveness is a process that brings repentance on one side and the willingness to absorb the cost of justice on the other side so that the relationship can be put on a whole new footing without this baggage. But if you have a wife abused by her husband um, and he is not showing any signs of being unabusing, her forgiveness is just going to get her more abuse. And so... Uh, Joseph recognizes that the repentance is true and genuine, so we want to pick up and move forward, and we don't want this burden anchoring us to the past. It's, it's an incredible picture of, of the freedom that comes in, in that relationship yeah. with God, that understanding of how God works and how forgiveness works. There's an interesting passage in, in chapter 45 and verse 5 where, where he says that God sent me here. That's, that's important to understand in, in our walk with, with God and some of the challenges that we face. I'm not sure that means that God willed him to go to Egypt. There was free will on the brother's part. If you go to Genesis 50, he says, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God is big enough that even when evil is done against us, God can move in and turn that into a ministry and a blessing. We know Joseph was forecast to kind of be a savior figure with all these dreams. Uh, it may not have had to go through Egypt, but, well, that's where it went, and God worked with it. And he says, God is bigger than you, so don't hold it against yourself. God has used this uh, for his glory. So let go. Don't worry. We've forgiven you. Let's move forward in the new relationship. Steve, thanks for giving us some insights into the story of Joseph, the prince of Egypt. Appreciate that. You're very welcome. And thank you for joining us. We're glad that you could be with us this week again. We have one week left, one lesson left in our study of the book of Genesis. 
and we look forward to seeing you again next week when we cover it. God bless you. See you then.